0: For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up. For some, the most dangerous invisible enemy is not a virus, but modern life in a world made from chemicals. Oliver Brody discusses his book, The Sensitives. I'll talk with Jess Baker about overcoming fat phobia and finding self-love. And... Have you ever found a moth in your wine glass? Get a summer insect update from the king of sting, Justin O. Schmidt. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Even without the presence of coronavirus, is our environment safe enough? Can detergent or hand sanitizer cause headaches? Research published in 2018 in the Journal for Occupational and Environmental Medicine says nearly 30 percent of the U.S. population has some form of chemical sensitivity. For a small number of people, this sensitivity can become severe, disabling them and forcing them to flee civilization. In his book, The Sensitives, The Rise of Environmental Illness and the Search for America's Last Pure Place, author Oliver Brody goes on a road trip to meet people with severe forms of chemical sensitivity, and he looks at the origin of what's causing it. Here's a conversation with Elisa Ivanitskaya.
1: Because the disease is not officially recognized by the medical establishment, it's very hard to define exactly what it is. It may begin with some small sensitivity but very often it grows to the point where you're uh, unable to tolerate pretty much anything. The more extremely affected people find themselves uh, living out in the middle of nowhere in national parks, out of tents, completely cut off from their friends and family. I've talked to people who have lost close to a million dollars in buying homes that they couldn't live in. The uh, number of suicides in this community is unusually high. So I really wanted to understand what that was about, especially because no one else really seemed to be interested in doing that. It seemed to be enough for everyone else to just sort of dismiss these people as kooks and move on. That seemed wrong to me.
2: How did you become interested in the subject?
1: Back in 2016, I had, for a while, along with everyone else, been receiving these warnings about things in my environment, like antifreeze had been found in whiskey, or there were certain crayons had been found to contain asbestos or uh, glyphosate in the Cheerios, phthalates in your Kraft mac and cheese, like all these little pings of danger. But it was never clear what exactly the danger was. Part of the process of growing as a human being is that you evolve this fairly complex risk calculus that's designed to help you make your way through the world and figure out what's safe and what isn't. But sometimes it can get very hazy. For instance, what is the risk of three glasses of wine versus driving without a seatbelt? Exactly at this point where I felt like sick with this uncertainty that I couldn't do anything about, I encountered this group of people who were responding to the same kinds of uncertainties. And I thought that they'd be able to suggest some kind of a solution.
2: You talk about this uh, concept of acceptable risk that for every modern advantage, there is amount of people that will die and that's acceptable. What do you think about risk management?
1: I think that we grew into this idea as the risks that we were creating for ourselves gradually grew beyond our ken. There's a, a theorist that I drew on pretty heavily in the book, this guy Ulrich Beck, who published this book in 1992 called Risk Society. And his whole thesis is that the nature of risk has changed in our modern era It's become more open-ended and uh, unmanageable. These new threats are global. They reach across borders, they reach across decades, and we fool ourselves in thinking that our puny little regulatory agencies are robust enough to handle them. And at some point, I think that we kind of implicitly accepted this. One of the hinges here is a nuclear reactor safety study that came out in 1975 called the Rasmussen Report. It was later discredited, but one of the ideas that the Rasmussen Report introduced was that the chances of dying from a nuclear meltdown were six orders of magnitude less likely than dying in a car accident. So it introduced this idea of relativity. So long as you could say that it's a lot less likely than dying in a car accident, then it's something that you could live with, so long as you were able to reap the benefits from it. Ulrich Beck had some nice verbiage for describing this. He called it organized irresponsibility were the logic of institutionalized non-coping.
2: And what's the most surprising thing that you've learned during your research?
1: So the cotton boom made clothing, cheap, durable clothing available for everyone. So this is a good thing, except for the fact that there were not the dyes available. Dyes at that time were made in this very old-fashioned, time-consuming way by grinding insects and lichens and bat guano, so there was this need for an alternative. It was discovered accidentally by an 18-year-old kid who was doing some science experiments in the attic of his house in London. He was actually trying to find a synthetic alternative to quinine because malaria at the time was a real problem for the British Empire. One of the byproducts was coal tar, and this kid was messing around in his attic, and he saw these little wisps of purple kind of stealing away from this chunk of coal tar, and he latched onto this as, as a possible dye. Thus was born the dye industry. The dye industry ended up giving rise to many others simply by virtue of the fact that it created byproducts. The medicine industry came shortly thereafter, and photography and plastics. And all this was given a boost by World War II with the introduction of chemical warfare. It's a long and, and interesting history, but I certainly couldn't have imagined that it began in the cotton fields in the South.
2: In your book, you travel with James, one of the sensitives. You meet several doctors and people who live in Snowflake. And so, how encounter with all these people has changed your understanding of uh, the sensitivities?
1: It made me think really deeply about how we arrive at uh, these ideas of what it means to be sick. The idea of sickness is based on an idea of the human body. So. What is often unspoken is what that human body is. So I always think of that, that Da Vinci diagram of the Vitruvian man, that spread eagle dude contained within that circle and square. The medical establishment in large part has followed, is built on that idea that there exists one human body. So there isn't. And at the very least, you can say that men and women are very different. We have pharmaceutical guidelines that are rarely delineated by gender, despite the obvious biological differences. Another example is that chronic pain patients, about 70% of them are are women, and yet 80% of all pain studies are on male cells. It wasn't until 2016 that the NIH began requiring grantees to study both genders. So it returns you to this question of how many bodies are there? Are there two? Uh, What about children? What about unborn children? All of these bodies respond differently to their environments and to illness in general. And once you start admitting that there is a psychological aspect to every illness, not just environmental illness, things become even more complicated because obviously everyone is different psychologically.
2: What do you think is missing in the healthcare?
1: Oh, boy. (laughs) You know, I don't want to sound doctrinaire, but one thing that I kind of walked away with at the end of this was a pretty firm conviction that the suffering of the patient has to be uh, at the center and has to come first for the doctor. Ultimately, I think the problem is deeply structural and that doctors ultimately are going to have to find a way to rediscover their voice and reclaim their profession from insurance companies, from pharmaceutical companies, and from big hospital chains if we're going to see any real progress here.
0: Elisa Ivanitskaya talked with Oliver Brody about his book, The Sensitives, The Rise of Environmental Illness and the Search for America's Last Pure Place, published by Simon & Schuster. The COVID-19 pandemic is an unprecedented experience. We are still far from understanding its entire scale and its traumatic implications. Jess Baker is a Tucson-based body image blogger and self-love enthusiast, and she urges us to rethink the relationship between mental and physical health and suggests ways to promote resilience against shame. Next, in this interview,
3: as a culture we have an incredibly disordered way of looking at food, as someone who grew up, you know, not able to have the comfort of knowing that there would be food available or, you know, when it would be available. Those grocery stores have stayed open, but I remember a couple months ago, just the energy around grocery stores and grocery shopping. And once you showed up, this panic and the fear, it, it was almost like uh, like Christmas shopping, you know, that obsessive rush yeah, right. to get, but like without any joy.
4: <laughs> <There's like laughs> right.
3: No celebration. It's just like a horror film. So it it permeates everything to the point where it felt traumatic to go grocery shopping in the first place. Mm -hmm. Of course, I'll just add for nuance. It's like if you could afford to go grocery shopping, right? Right. That, I think, just really can throw a lot of people for a loop. Um, I was there one day shopping for, you know, baby formula for my sister who just had an infant and lives in a rural part of Arizona and couldn't go grocery shopping, you know, and is using the WIC program and all of that. And they had two, (laughs) two canisters of formula that you could only buy one at a time. I was only able to buy one. And it was just this realization of the scarcity that even if there's stuff on the shelf as well, I was only able to provide, you know, two weeks of food for her infant and she wasn't able to get more. And so that is when it kind of really struck me. I am incredibly privileged to be able to have some work from home and be able to go get groceries. But I I think that that scarcity complex absolutely permeates our home as well, really being scared that, you know, next time you go, there might not be enough. The truth that I feel is whatever it takes to get you through this, Is incredible. Like you're doing a great job. (laughs) And the shame around grappling with all of those emotions around food and you're feeling shame around what that looks like. I just wish that I could, you know, magic wand, cut out all the shame. We're doing the best we can. We're in the middle of a very traumatic situation.
0: As an alternative to diet culture, I've read about intuitive eating on your blog and other places. And this is a situation that even if someone has made strides in becoming more intuitive in the way they're eating and their relationship with food, this situation is going to mess you up. That's what I feel enormous compassion for are people who are trying to make strides and to break away from diet culture and to find a healthier lifestyle. And now global events essentially have gotten in the way.
3: I think it's interesting, the healthier lifestyle for me automatically turns into like a mental stability, having different kinds of resources to support our mental stability so that we are able to, you know, show up in a very responsive instead of reactive way. Um, Amy Morgan is a trauma counselor who wrote something really incredible about just kind of outlining this pandemic and kind of what's happening for people. And she was talking about how there's two elements that make trauma traumatic. And one is not being able to escape it. And two is not being able to kind of make sense of the event. Mm. And so we're still, and I know that there is this desperate need to go back to what we feel is normal, Um, But we're still dealing with essentially this invisible attack. No matter how many people are out there walking around like nothing's ever happened, we're still very much in the middle of this. And so I feel like changing our expectations of what we need to do and how we need to show up as a human in this time is very, very different. And I, I do feel like when it comes to all the pieces of our life, the resiliency of our brain and nervous system is key.
0: When you first start interacting with someone who may have grown up with difficult body image issues and not had a voice of positivity in their life, can you give us an idea of like the key areas that you first want to establish with someone who's grown up basically hating themselves because others have told them that they should?
3: That the hatred, loathing, the disordered eating, the complications around movement, the everything, you know, and of course like self-esteem and mental health, all it affects everything in our life, right? That is not our fault, not even a little bit. And so whenever people come with this guilt, with this shame, with this embarrassment, the thing I... And they communicate it in a much more eloquent way, right? (laughs) Because it's a conversation. But they're superheroes because none of this is our fault. We grew up as children. We needed to be protected. Instead of being protected in this way, we instead were instilled. We didn't ask for it. With these ideas, with these derogatory pieces of what we thought were gospel, and likely our parents had also internalized that you know, toxicity, and so it was, like, kind of repeating it, and we were watching it, and there really was no way to truly escape it. None of us asked for this. It's not blame on ourselves. It's blame on a system that was created to profit off of us and to keep opportunity and resiliency and power down and oppressed, and so when I say people are superheroes, I really do mean it because we didn't ask for this. They didn't ask for this, and here they are willing to do this really, really hard internal and external work to shift into a more balanced and healing place. So I have a lot of respect for each person that I work with.
0: Can you cite a trend? That you think is positive that's going on now? I mean, you've been involved with this work for I, at least a decade, I would think.
3: Yeah, almost.
0: So, in that time, what is something that you feel is going in the right direction?
3: Since January and February, there has been a complete reevaluation of what we thought was important and what is now important. And the trend I see that I think we're all seeing is the social movement for equality and equity, especially around Black Lives Matter and Black and brown bodies. Anti-fatness is inextricably connected to racism. And there's a great book called Fearing the Black Body that came out last year. That if anyone's interested in learning a lot more about how that's intertwined, uh, that is a great book to read. You know, here I am talking about, you know, larger bodies and fat acceptance or anti-fat bias, and it's all connected to the social movements that are um, really manifesting right now. So I think that is a trend that is shifting the political landscape. It affects everyone, including larger bodies.
0: My guest was Jess Baker, known to many as the militant baker. Justin O. Schmidt is an entomologist and author who is best known as the originator of the Schmidt Pain Index. It's a way to measure the relative discomfort caused by various bites and stings from different insect species, which means that Schmidt willingly subjected himself to a wide variety of them. From time to time, I like to talk with Justin Schmidt to find out what's buzzing with insect life in our vicinity. He says this year has been one that has defied some expectations.
4: You know, the first thing that came to mind early in the year, probably a number of people remember they had these huge mosquito-like things that were just inundating in in their house, in their cars, in their yard, just all over the place. These are what we call crane flies, and they're actually a a non-biting midge. They, They look more or less like a mosquito that's on growth hormones and steroids. You know, they're monster things, and what they usually live in, areas that are boggy, you know, so swampy areas. <laughs> well,
0: well it, Justin, it appears to me that they live in the corners of my house.
4: Yeah, well, maybe that <laughs> says something.
0: <laughs> okay, but they're they're typically drawn to humid, boggy conditions.
4: Yeah, that's where they usually breed. They the the larvae, the immatures, eat decaying vegetative material, and so they're really common in places like Scotland, where there's peat bogs, and Ireland, and any much wetter place. And people think, huh. Well, Arizona, we don't have anything like that, for heaven's sakes. Well, there are a few patches, and this spring we had tremendous rains, you know, up to the uh, first three months of the year. And I think we got enough boggy conditions in certain areas that there was just a huge outbreak of these things like I'd never seen before. And I've only been here 40 years, so maybe I need a longer survey. I don't know. But there were a lot of them, and it's something that's really not expected in the desert.
0: Okay, so that's an example of something that happened this year that we didn't expect to see, but what's something that we were looking for that didn't happen?
4: Yeah, you know, something on the other hand, which is not nearly as benign and pleasant, let's put it that way, are of at least my house. I live in the foothills of the Tucson Mountains. We had this huge outbreak of what's called kissing bugs. They're these about inch-long, blackish, unattractive, blood-sucking bugs that fly in may and june and they're dispersing what they normally are doing is living in rodent burrows like pack rat nests but this this year was a bonanza year i caught 291 in my house of one species and about 54 of the other species we have three of them and i guess i was lucky i didn't get the third one but normally you'll get you know a dozen maybe two dozen you know a few of them around they're bite you and your pets, and they're pretty unsavory, just sort of unpleasant additions to our life. But this year, having 291, my goodness, that's over the top.
0: I've had a small um, swarm invade my neighborhood, or at least my apartment, and it's those click beetles, those cylindrical, black, shiny beetles that can somehow or another pop their carapace in a way that causes them to fly up in the air. And often they attract the attention of one of my two cats. Now I've seen them in Arizona over the years, but very rarely. But recently I've had like a bloom <laughs> where there's there's been 10 to a dozen that uh, have been spotted in my place. And each time I dutifully take them out into the alley and let them go. But uh, is it the same ones coming back in all the time, or for what reason might you have to explain why there would be a whole bunch of click beetles in one small area in Tucson?
4: Yeah, that's one of the great mysteries of biology. You know, for a couple of centuries, biologists, including today, we always scratch our heads and say, why is it we go out in the field, and one day we'll see a whole bunch of one species, like, for example, uh, not on insects, but on snakes, I was... I have a study site in near Wilcox, Arizona, that I've been going to for about 30 years. And one time in this 30 years, one evening, and I often go out there, you know, sometimes 20, 30 days a year in the summer, so it's, it's not just a sporadic thing. In one year, I saw three hognosed snakes, perfectly harmless snakes that mainly eat frogs and toads. I saw three in one day in this area at night. And I've never seen another one before or since. And the questions that we have is, what was so special about that particular day? We can look at the weather charts. We can look at the humidity. We can look at the you know, rainfall, temperature, everything you can possibly imagine. And it doesn't really give us the answer. You know, it's just one of these ongoing mysteries that maybe makes life a little bit more interesting and beautiful. Who knows?
0: I'd still be interested in hearing from anyone in Tucson who's noticed more click beetles than usual. This is my 29th summer in Tucson, but for Spotlight's assistant producer, Elisa Ivanitskaya, it is her first. She has some questions about the native insect population, so I thought she should talk to Justin Schmidt herself.
2: Nice to meet you, Justin.
4: Yeah, hi, Elisa, and my pleasure to meet you, too. You
2: know, um, I have this issue. Uh, (laughs) Every time I clean the leaves uh, from my backyard, I get attacked by ants. And it's not that I'm standing on their nest. Actually, I'm like trying not to step on them, and they still attack me. What's wrong with them?
4: Well, you're probably disturbing near their nest and maybe actually raking over the top of where their nest is. This time of year, especially these wet times, we have what's called native fire ants, and if they come out and they kind of—you might call it a bite, but it's actually a sting—if they crawl up your your shoes and get onto your ankles and they kind of bite or sting, and ants are very territorial. You know, once you uh, start disturbing their their home, it's kind of like somebody pounding on your door, and your your twins are in the in the house, and you want to protect them. You know, you get kind of defensive and say, "Go away! I'm going to call the, the authorities, chase you out of here." And, and leave me alone, and it's the same kind of thing that ants will do if you get too near their nests. So that's probably what's happening in your case. But I guess the one advantage, you can just not rake the leaves and be messy, so you can be justified to all your neighbors and your family that, hey, I'm being a good conservationist protecting these ants and not disturbing their nest, and they like the leaves, so I'll just leave them there. and so that's an excuse for not breaking leaves.
2: Oh, thank you for this advice. <laughs> um, I have another issue <laughs> too. I recently noticed that moths fly not only to the light bulbs but also to wine glass. Are they alcoholics?
4: Yeah, that's an interesting thing. I, I have that happen quite often. It's not you know just you. It's a frequent thing. And wine has a lot of aromatic compounds that are being released. That's what gives it the wonderful bouquet that you know makes. A fine wine, expensive, and a not so fine wine, a little bit less expensive. Well, many of these compounds, and there's literally dozens to hundreds of them in wine, and some of these are attractive to flies. They can represent something like yeast, will be a fermenting thing, which is a good, good substrate for many of the larvae to feed on. It's you know nice and nutritious, and usually is an indication of of a food source nearby. So whether they're actually attracted to the alcohol or not, I don't really know. They, it could be the, the alcohol itself, although I, I don't think so because I don't recall seeing them coming to margaritas or open cans and glasses of beer or you know, anything other than wine. So I suspect that if it were the alcohol, they would be non-discriminatory and would come to whatever you have of a, of a nice beverage.
2: And if moth was faster than me in drinking wine, can I just take this bug and throw it away and continue sipping my drink? Or is there anything in science that can tell us, don't do this, Uh, they can be contagious and carry some kind of disease?
4: No, I just do the same thing you mentioned. I just sort of stick my finger underneath the moth or the fly or whatever it is that's gotten into my wine, lift it out and chuck it. But the only thing I can think of that would be bad to eat, we have some blister beetles, which are kind of grayish beetles, about two-thirds of an inch long. You don't want to eat those because they're what used to be called Spanish fly. They have cantharidin, which is a very nasty chemical compound that'll rot out your stomach. So other than a few gray beetles, you have no risk of any kind of problem. Just chuck the thing out and enjoy the wine and chalk it up to that it has a good taste just like you do.
2: Yeah, I mean, I tried crickets and chocolate, very tasty and crunchy. Yeah,
4: crickets are quite quite a delicacy nowadays.
0: Elisa and I spoke with Justin O. Schmidt, a U of A entomologist at the Southwestern Biological Institute. His most popular book is The Sting of the Wild, The Story of the Man Who Got Stung for Science, published by Johns Hopkins Press. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The interim news director is Duncan Moon. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The assistant producer is Elisa Ivanitskaya. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.
1: Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.